This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Very exciting show for everyone today. I have Tim Ferriss. He's a best-selling author. He's a podcast god at this point, I think we can say. Life hacker, gonzo nutritionist, and entrepreneur. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I would say I would say lower Loki instead of uh, broadly speaking, God, more of a <laughs> mischief. Well, I read I read you were the, uh, the the Oprah of podcasts, which puts you definitely on some sort of uh, Mount Olympus or something. Yeah, I think I think Oprah's still on the varsity team, and I'm benching for junior varsity, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But this is really cool. So I think we're flipping it a little today because you have an extremely popular podcast on the Tim Ferriss Show. It's had over 100 million downloads, and you interview you know the world's best performers and athletes and actors, and I get to kind of flip it around and interview you today. So this is a nice little break, maybe, or maybe you're on the hot spot. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be on the other side. <laughs> so tell me, I enjoy, I enjoy the tap dancing of being on this side. So I love your story, Tim, because you started, you know, you wrote a very unlikely bestseller, The 4-Hour Workweek, and you didn't stop there, and you were able to turn that into your own, you know, personal brand, multimedia, investing, the whole thing. I would love to hear about, you know, how you did that, but first, what is new? What's going on? What's, what's exciting these days? What's exciting to me right now, I'll actually give you an exclusive, is I'm putting together a three-volume set of Stoic philosophy, not my own writing, but primarily the writing of Seneca with illustrations and calligraphy and all sorts of fun stuff that I'll be giving away for free. Very uh, cool. That is what I'm currently thinking about. What um, I know you're obviously a master of efficiency. Why do you want to devote your time to the Stoics? I think Stoic philosophy, even though it often conjures at least the word Stoic, uh, the image of maybe a cow standing in the rain, that it's, in fact, a, a, a really effective operating system for thriving in high-stress environments. So if you don't want to emotionally overreact, drain your battery unnecessarily, and make better decisions, uh, I, I think that you can put the serenity prayer into action with exercises and principles from Stoic philosophy. A lot of shared, a lot of overlap and shared principles with uh, Zen Buddhism, coincidentally, but the uh, they can be used from uh, the boardroom and in a say tech or entrepreneurship capacity all the way to the, the last two Super Bowl teams, uh, including owners, management, and players have all been reading Stoic philosophy. Uh, so it's very, very widely applicable. And your plans to g- kind of as a as a service give it give it out for free? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I've I've been very fortunate and uh, have had a really fun time with the release of my last book, Tools of Titans, in the last few months. And so, as a thank you to my fans and I suppose people who might not otherwise come across anything that I put out or who are unable to buy books for whatever reason, I'll put these out for free. Amazing. And that new book, I, I downloaded it a few days ago on Kindle because I'm trying to reduce my, uh, my, my paper waste or just reduce my space because I have two crazy kids at home now. But I realized this is a book you want in print because it, it's – tell me about the, how this formed and tell the audience kind of about 
you know, what the book is because it's not it's it's kind of a thing you want to pick up and pick a random page and read. You don't want to go through it electronically. You want to be able to f- kind of scroll through like an old guidebook. Yeah, you could uh you could it's 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 definitely easier to manage on Kindle than uh, say my my book before that which was a cookbook. You definitely want the visuals for that. But I would say the Tools of Titans in Brief is a effectively a choose-your-own-adventure guide to the habits, routines, tactics, and tools of world-class performers, ranging from entertainers like Jimmy Fox, where you get to learn his morning routines and exercise routines and so on, to, say, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or uh, hospice care physicians who have helped a thousand people to die. What can you pull from them? Entrepreneurs and billionaires, whether it's Mark Andreessen, Peter Thiel, and so on. Uh, so it's really just a collection of bite-sized profiles that cover key habits, routines, tools, etc. that these people have used to get to where they are. And like you said, it's it's not intended to be ingested in one sitting. It's a big book. Uh, you you don't even have to read ever the entire book. It's really just about picking and choosing what you find interesting and helpful in the sections of healthy, wealthy, and wise, depending on where you are and what you need. Not to burn your sources, but do you have a favorite tip or a favorite page out of there? <laughs> well, I will say that uh, I will I will maybe answer this indirectly, which is that Arnold Schwarzenegger, I grew up as a kid on Long Island with a rat tail, sort of raised on Commando and Predator and so on, so to have Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> actually write the forward to the book, uh, which you could title, I Am Not a Self-Made Man, talks about how he's he's searched for help and stood on the shoulders of giants and borrowed from other people, that was and still is very surreal for me. <laughs> so I would say that comes to mind. And you're, you know, this is this was an instant bestseller like most of your books. And I think you're an expert brander and expert at social media. But last time I saw you was on TV. You were like a few weeks ago. I think were you bench pressing Jimmy Fallon? What was what was that? <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, just as, as context, listens to the podcast. He is a. He is the nicest, most positive guy you've ever met in your life, and he is what you see on TV. Uh, he's everything you would hope him to be. Got him up on my feet in an acro yoga pose. So, yeah, I was suspending uh, Jimmy Fallon up on my feet on nighttime television. <laughs> and how was that for is that this TV? I know you're a big social media guy, but does TV still pack a punch when in terms of uh, attention and getting uh, getting people to buy the book or tune into the podcast? If it's Jimmy Fallon, yes, it absolutely packs a massive punch. Uh, no doubt whatsoever. And you know, this is kind of meta, a podcast talking about podcasts, but I love the story of yours. How did you get this going? Because it started out as a hobby, right? And now it's become a big, big business for you. It started off as, as I would say, less than a hobby. It started off, uh, it came to be really because I was burned out after writing The 4-Hour Chef. It's a huge book, thousands of illustrations, hundreds of photos, and for whatever reason, I thought it would be a good idea to try to do a lot of those myself. Uh, which I would discourage everyone from doing if you're trying to put together a gigantic four-color book on deadline. <laughs> and I never, I wasn't sure if I would ever write another book. And I wanted something very different that would be a creative outlet where I could play, feel very little pressure, and experiment, for instance, with better questions, fixing verbal tics, doing better research and preparation for conversations, all things that would help me in other areas of my life and future projects, even if I quit the podcast after six episodes. And that's the number I targeted. I decided to, to commit to doing six episodes for a host of reasons, including learning as much as possible. But I felt like that for whatever reason, six episodes would be 
enough to see if I liked it, enough to learn a lot even if I didn't like it, and uh, I wanted to publicly commit that to friends of mine so that I couldn't back out after doing one or two. And that is how it started, with drinking a, a very, very inadvisable amount of wine with my friend Kevin Rose in the first episode when the show didn't even have a name. And Well, I drink uh, during all my podcasts, so it's, 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 a, it's a good tip. So, so, so that is how it started, and there was no monetizing of any type. It didn't even cross my mind to consider it for, I don't know, maybe the first 50 episodes. I, I, it could, I could be slightly off, but it has now become by far my largest outlet. I mean, the Tim Ferriss Show has grown three or four X since a year ago. It's last month crossed uh, close, to, close to 12 million downloads just last month. Wow. And is that per show or per month? Or? That was per month. Okay. So, that, so last month uh, was 12, and by the time people are listening to this, it'll probably be larger still. Every month has been a record-setting month uh, for the show, which has been great. And um, it is my favorite part about writing, which is doing the, the interviews of experts without the writing. <laughs> <laughs> so I <laughs> uh, fell into it. But um, I, I think everybody should start a podcast uh, and do so because of how much they will learn about themselves and improve their thinking and asking of questions, if we're talking about interview format, mm-hmm. in a very short period of time. And if you say, um, or mm-hmm, or have any other verbal tick and listen to the audio, it will drive you incredibly insane to the extent that you will ultimately try to fix it. What do you, besides making it a great research tool for you, how, what do you explain this, this rapid success? I mean, you, the growth is crazy. Um, it's been your biggest outlet and it kind of happened by a happy accident. I have a friend who's starting a new podcast with Forbes and maybe he needs some tips. What do you, what, how did you exp- uh, get this going and going so well? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give a, a couple of, a uh, couple of thoughts. And I would say before I give them that my advice is probably somewhat specific to interview format shows, because if you want to do something like this American life, which I'm not qualified to do, nor do I think I could do well, mm-hmm. which is highly produced, and storylines and different narrators potentially and in-the-field recordings, uh, that is a different game. That's not what I focus on. So if we're talking about interviews, I would say, number one, uh, zig when other people are zagging, and specifically what I mean by that is if, if, if there is a trend in one direction, consider at least testing the other. And podcasts are such, so lightweight in the way that I do them that if everyone is trying to go short form, try going really long form. There's always a market for quality, so consider doing the opposite of whatever is trendy, uh, at least in a few episodes. Mm-hmm. And I constantly experiment with my podcast where I'm doing, uh, say, drunk dial episodes where I'm Skyping to fans and having them ask me questions <laughs> <laughs> or having my guests do solo follow-up episodes where they record questions at their leisure and so on. I'm constantly tweaking and experimenting. And I, I did something recently which was very similar to TED Radio Hour, where I was pulling from different episodes on, say, meditation or some other related theme. So always, always be experimenting is, is the second point. And perhaps the most important is, I'd say there are two things that are very, very important, perhaps the most important. Number one is scratch your own itch and follow that. So don't try to speculate about what your audience, in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. wants, because maybe you don't have an audience to start with. Do something that you will enjoy or find interesting 
yourself. And then you have a guaranteed market of one, which is better than most folks. So scratch your own itch whenever possible. Every time I interview someone, it is, for a, it is to address some personal question or insecurity or challenge that I have. And then I would say, uh, set it up so you can win. Mm-hmm. In other words, I would not advise most people to try to mimic this American life. You're not going to out this American life, this American life. And what you don't see is behind the scenes. They have, in some cases, probably dozens of people working on a single episode for weeks or months. Oh, it's armies, armies of people. Armies or serial, for instance, which I, th- I want to say was an entire team working together for a year prior to first the first episode being published. And uh, unless you're willing to do that, which I think might be premature for most people if they've never tested podcasting, mm-hmm. keep it as lightweight as possible. And that's another reason why my interviews tend to be one take and you're done. It's, I, I do very little editing, even though I have editors now who help me. In the beginning, I was doing a lot of it myself because I wanted to understand how things work behind the scenes. Keep it simple. Keep it, keep it simple. And, and you, you do not need, you do not need, uh, you need audible, clear audio. You do not need something that can be played at uh, Carnegie Hall. Yeah, no, uh, most people are going to be listening HD, to... HD radio, any of that stuff. Exactly. Most people are going to be listening on their commute, in the car, while they're vacuuming, walking the dog. Uh, you do not need perfect audio. And I, I think that in podcasting, there's there's such a an elephant graveyard of sorts of three episode podcast where people quit after three because Mm -hmm. they've 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 tried to bite off too much in the beginning so just keep it simple you don't even need intro music outro music sponsors forget about all that (laughs) (laughs) just talk and you mentioned getting started you said you know scratching your own itch and you were you know investigating things that you want to learn about but now with such a big fan base, and I know you're a big A-B tester, do you design shows and, and guests based on what your audience wants, or is it still Tim searching in the wilderness here? Uh, it is, it is uh, often people who get recommended to me, uh, but I, I will very rarely interview someone just because my audience wants me to interview them. Mm-hmm. I, have to always be per- I have to always be personally interested, or it will come across in the interview. And uh, I would say, though, that some of my best guests have come from fans suggesting them in blog comments or on Twitter or Facebook, etc. And at this point in time, and I'm very proud of this, I would say at least 50%, probably 70% of my guests are referred to me and recommended to me and then introduced to me by other guests who have been on. So past guests are now at this point referring 50 to 70 percent i would say of the people that i have on it's great sourcing it's kind of like a, a journalist you know a lot of times your past subjects you're also your best future sources yeah um, definitely who has been your biggest surprise like who was a person you had on the show that you were kind of like ah, i'm not sure i want the bertoni guy on the show or something and then it turns out they uh <laughs> they kind of like rocked your world is there like a great surprise yeah. Well, there, there have been a lot of great surprises. I don't interview anyone that I think might be terrible. I, I very rarely want to take the time to do that. Not and terrible. I, had, I guess maybe, we'll, no. maybe you're more lukewarm than someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that. Um, and I would also say that you need to have a high when you get going and have figured out what is good for you. This is just another general guideline. Keep Hold the standard, meaning don't put out subpar stuff. So I probably have six or seven interviews that I've recorded that I have not and probably will not publish because mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like they 
deliver what I promise in the podcast, which is the very specific tactics and routines and so on. Any, any, back to, yeah, any surprise that sticks out? Yeah, but back to your question. Uh, <laughs> there is a palliative care physician, meaning a hospice physician who's helped more than a thousand people to die, named B.J. Miller. And I, I'd, I'd never spoken to him before our interview, I don't think. And if I'd spoken to him, it was just a few minutes on the phone. And mm-hmm. I, I really didn't know what to expect. I knew he was very smart. I knew he was very good at what he did. Uh, he's also a triple amputee due to an uh, electrocution accident uh, oh, wow. in college. And that has been one of the most transformative and profound interviews slash conversations that I've had in the past few years. Uh, I thought his advice, his philosophical insights, his practical, tactical recommendations, his stories about, for instance, how he rides a motorcycle <laughs> and how that came to be are in tremendously inspiring. Uh, that episode, from a lesser known name, was was incredibly impactful for me. So I think B.J. Miller would be one that uh, I really, really, really enjoyed. He also has a very good TED Talk for those people who don't want a longer interview, although I think it's certainly worth it. I'm biased. Uh, he also has a very good TED Talk. So you can have the polished TED Talk with a more loose, I'm sure you talked to him for what, two hours on the podcast with, with your show? Yeah, I talked to him for about two hours and was, I was just riveted the entire time. I think it's, I think it's a really meaningful, I think it's a really meaningful, deep conversation and uh, I was tremendously impressed by BJ. I'm going to jump away from the podcast to back to the beginning. I want to talk about the four-hour work week, which was, I guess, your your the big seminal uh, Ferris work that put you on the map. How did that come about? How did you think about this, and how did it get published? <laughs> the four-hour work week. Well, this uh, this four-hour thing has been a blessing and a curse ever since, as you can imagine. I should also say for those people who might be demoralized or get knocked down, the book was rejected by. Uh, it was either 26 or 27 publishers. (laughs) So it wasn't like this was seen as the most promising rookie of the season at all. It was violently rejected uh, a lot. It was a third-round draft pick? Oh, yeah, at best. And the the original title was also rejected, which was Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit, which kind of relates to the origin story. So that was a tongue-in-cheek reference to a high-tech entrepreneurship lecture uh, that I gave twice a year at Princeton for about 10 years in total. I think it started in 2003, I want to say. And it just talked about my experiences as a bootstrapped entrepreneur. And the notes from that class, as I refined it over time, talking to hundreds of students, seeing what they responded to, what they understood, what they found confusing, what they didn't like, was really the basis for a lot of the book. Mm -hmm. And I'd never planned on writing a book. In fact, my senior thesis was so such a horrible experience for me in, in school that I vowed never to write anything longer than an email after graduation, ever. And that has clearly not worked out since my books tend to be hundreds of pages long. Yeah, the new one's what, 700 pages? 700 pages. It's a big email. It's a, it's a big email. And uh, uh, the, the way it came about is I met Jack Canfield, who's co creator and writer of uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, mm-hmm. which had sold at that point 100 million plus copies. I think now it's 500 plus million copies. just insane. Uh, I had met when I was first volunteering in Silicon Valley at a entrepreneurship nonprofit where he ended up coming in as a speaker. And I developed 
a relationship with him because I had volunteered to organize the event. And at one point, many years later, I'd never asked him really for any favors, maybe life advice once a year or twice, once every two years. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I asked him, I put together a, pro- I, a proposal because either he or some students, I think some stu- a student had actually said, I don't understand why you're teaching a class of 50 students. Why don't you write a book and be done with it? Which mm-hmm. was actually just a snarky Princeton student comment. And I can say that having been a <laughs> Princeton student. I don't think it was serious, but I, I at the time had horrible insomnia. Uh, so I started getting these ideas for chapter titles and so on, and I had to write them down to get to sleep, just to get them out of my head. And so I got this big pile of stuff. I had a break at the time, and I put together a book proposal just for the hell of it. And I sent it to Jack, and before I knew it, uh, even though I hadn't asked for it, he was introducing me to uh, potential agents who also, everybody turned me down except for one, mm-hmm. uh, who is still my agent to this day? Uh, he's done okay, and um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, uh, so agents and uh, editors and so on, and it really just gathered steam from there, and I, I became uh, excited about the project, which took a while. Uh, and in nonfiction, it's important to understand that you sell the book and then you write the book. Yeah. So you need to have a treatment and a proposal, sample chapters. But unlike fiction, where you almost always have to deliver a finished manuscript. In nonfiction, you sell it and then you write it, and that's how it came to be. And the the book was a slow build. I mean, it did very well, and it hit the New York Times, but it, no one expected it to do anything. It had an initial print run of close to ten thousand copies. I think maybe twelve thousand copies. Mm-hmm. Didn't even have national distribution, full national distribution. And uh, here we are. So, did you? Did they name it, or did you come up with it, the four-hour name besides the drug dealing? Uh, I came up with the name. I came up with a list of titles that I could live with, uh-huh. titles and subtitles. And then, uh, because I didn't want to rely purely on emotion to make the decision, I did Google AdWords testing. So I actually put together a campaign where I had a bunch of domains for different book titles. Mm-hmm. All the pages were blank, just under construction. But I created ads on Google AdWords for people searching for, say, world travel, retirement, etc., where the the ad headline would be the book title, and then the ad text would be the subtitle, and then there would be a URL. And I looked at the click-through rates, and what Google AdWords did, and I'm sure it does still today, is they automatically mix and match to identify the ideal combination of mm-hmm. headline and ad text. So for, I want to say it was less than $200, I was able to get statistically significant results back that showed four hour work week was uh, above and beyond the best performing title and then the subtitle was also the subtitle that I ended up choosing so thank you Google once again <laughs> thank you Google they're there and then you could certainly use other things that weren't available at the time mm-hmm. so Facebook advertising and so on to even further target let's say you're writing for a specific demo or a young adult or whatever it is you could you could really get granular now I also did the same thing with book covers. I printed out uh, mock-ups of the book covers, and I went to Borders in Palo Alto at the time, no longer exists, and I I found the same-sized book, wrapped it with these mock-up covers, and then I would put it in the new arrivals rack in the same place and and keep track of the number of people who picked up the book. (laughs) A very imprecise imprecise thing, Uh, and there was a lot of confusion once they picked it up, and they're like, wait, what the hell? But 
nonetheless, uh, I try to, whenever possible, uh, do some type of, of split testing with this kind of thing. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. A lot of businesses, too many, think of payments as a mechanical function. It just needs to work. But your payments solution can be an engine for growth. It can help up your conversion rates. It can help tap you into market growth. It can help allay security concerns that are limiting your customer spending. And payments can be a way to provide new experiences to your customers. You want to grow your business? Rethink your payments. Braintree. Rethink Payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash forms. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly 1 million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. And it's coming to Podcast One in just a few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. I remember when, the, when a couple years ago, I, I, we first met back on the, uh, the crazy first summit cruise. That was probably five, <laughs> six years ago. But I remember yeah. we went shark tagging. But I remember um, talking, I brought up to a friend of mine. And he's like, oh, I just read that The 4-Hour Workweek. It's a great book. But he said, man, I bet that Ferris guy works a lot more than four hours a week. And I'm like, yes, I'm, I, I know him. He does. But what is a typical now, typical Tim Ferriss day look like or Tim Ferriss work week look like? Oh, man, this is a, this is a common question. I've, I've never had a very typical week. Uh, so it varies widely. And I should say also, since it's been, as I mentioned, such a blessing and a curse, for those who haven't read the four-hour work week, the objective is not to be idle. That's not what I'm suggesting. Uh, the objective and the, the point of the tools and principles and so on in the book is to help you ideally 10x your hourly output, right? And uh, certainly that is the reason that I think a lot of this hit the tipping point mm-hmm. in the tech world before anywhere else. And I uh, the advantage of living in Silicon Valley also, but in a culture that's obsessed with, say, GTD and getting things done and so on, that part matched very well. So. First and foremost, it's about maximizing your per hour output, not about staring at the ceiling and tripping on LSD, watching paint dry or something. That's not what I'm recommending. Or, or, uh, or golf, same kind of thing. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and uh, the, you know what? I completely blanked. This is where I, maybe I, I need more more caffeine. What was the what was the question again? <laughs> Basically, oh yeah, a typical. What's a typical, oh, a typical day week. in the life? Typical day in life. Typical right. week of the life kind of thing. Right. So the way the way that I'll answer this maybe a little obliquely. The way that I plan my time is uh, doing things that excite me, looking at the Venn diagram of things that excite me, and then the things that will hopefully do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And uh, uh, I, and I'm trying to spend more time on things that are just. Uh, of beautiful and absurd in some ways. That's 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 going to take us off into a, a major tangent. Uh, but that's just for this year. I want to spend more time on that stuff. But the the point I was going to make is that uh, unlike many people, and there's no right answer to, uh, or th- it's not that there is a right answer here. 
I don't have any, say, 10-year plans or five-year plans because I've found that when I've attempted that in the past, mm-hmm. I have a reliable five- or 10-year plan, whether it's business or professional. If you want a reliable plan, you need to aim for base hits. In other words, you need to be very comfortably below your max abilities. Does that make sense? Yeah. You, you really can't swing for the Low, low, go, low bars. Exactly. You have, you have to have low hurdles. Otherwise, you're, you're going to, to strike out and mess up. And I want the freedom to strike out and mess up. And for that reason, I generally look at my life as a series of six-month projects. And it, it varies. But, and then within those six-month projects, I have two-week experiments of various types. So right now, my calendar for 2017 is surprisingly empty. Uh, and it's starting to fill in. But I wanted the book, in this case, Tools of Titans, yep. launched the book. I didn't want to over-calendar 2017 because my assumption was that opportunities and people would come out of the woodwork that I couldn't possibly predict beforehand. And like, then, doing, like doing yoga with Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? So that kind of stuff comes up. And th- only at that point do I want to look at the menu of options and decide where I'm most excited and where I think I can do the the greatest good for the, the greatest number of people. What's one thing that you're excited about right now that people might not know about? Uh, one thing I'm excited about right now, well, we already talked about the acro yoga, so I, I won't talk about some specifics of acro yoga. Uh, I'm very excited about, this is going to sound very strange, I'm really excited about improving my lower leg strength and stability. So specifically, we're talking about the feet and the ankles. Uh, and Achilles tendon because you, I, want awesome, I, you just want awesome calves. Just admit, you can. <laughs> I want cows instead of calves. No, I I I realized that many of my knee, hip, and back issues I think can be traced back to having very very flat feet and the exercises I was given as a as a kid because I had these horrible debilitating foot cramps. I never stuck with. They, they didn't make sense to me. They weren't fun, et cetera. And since that point in time, only in the last, I'd say, three months have I begun to reexamine this and explore it and have found things like slant boards. Uh, Eric Orton, is, uh, he was the running coach made famous in Born to Run. Uh, he is, well, a friend introduced me to Eric Orton's approach to using slant boards and wobble boards. And that, in addition to, say, uh, some specific timed slackline workouts and uh, negatives, so eccentric exercises for the Achilles, has really changed uh, how I view athletics and being a resilient human being as you age. I, I, I think, at least in my case, I was very negligent of, you know, I do squats, great. I do what I thought were all the primary movements I had to hit, but I ignored the base of the statue or the base of everything here, which is your feet on the ground and the ankles and so on. So that's an odd one, but I'm very excited <laughs> about that right now. And you're a, you're a tech guy and you live out in San Francisco. Any, anything tech-wise is exciting, whether it's a company or a feature or an app that's kind of got your attention now? Ooh, that's a great one. Uh, I have effectively been on a startup vacation for the last two years, so I haven't done much investing at all, uh, and uh, that is probably going to continue with one or two exceptions, but I would say that I am I'm excited by how excited people still are <laughs> to 
create companies. And whether or not we are in a bubble, even in a bubble, for instance, and by the way, almost all of almost everything is cyclical, whether it's an art market or real estate or tech, everything goes up and then goes down. And I've been through two cycles already yeah. that seemed like apocalypse apocalypse at the time and neither was, of course, things bounce back. So in tech I've been I've been very pleased to see how long now we've really been in effectively a, a bull market where uh, a lot of people are creating companies, and when a lot of people create companies, it's just a numbers game. You're going to end up with great companies, even if they're even if they seem overpriced, even if they seem fill in the blank criticism. Uh, they're going to be the more players you have in the game, the better. The, the more superstars are going to surface and create incredible things. Yeah, and so, I feel like this is this Pandora's box has been opened. I, I feel no one's. Gonna, I mean, there'll always be big companies, but you know, people coming out of college or quitting their jobs don't want to work for the big the big, massive uh, multinational. They want to start their own thing. I think that is here to stay, unless something very economically tragic happens. Yeah, which will. Uh, that, that will happen, because it always does. Yeah. And people get greedy, and then they start making bad decisions, and then bad decisions compound, and then there's some type of uh, mutual dependency, like long-term capital management, I think it was, <laughs> where yes. there are these unintended consequences of people getting greedy and making bad decisions. So uh, things will come crashing down, and then chances are when everyone is running around like Chicken Little and there's blood in the streets, that's when I will come back out and go, oh, that thing that used to cost a dollar is now two cents, and I think it's still amazing. Okay, let's buy as much of that as possible. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it is great to see people building and creating as opposed to just shuffling papers around and you know, getting getting paid for uh, doing non-value-add work. There's a lot of that out there. And, if, and of course, there's some necessary administrative uh, element to everything, but it's it's nice to see that so many people now are focusing on building things. And talking about value-add, you just, you know, just published a 700-page book all full of tips and advice from some of the best thinkers in the world. Can you give me one or two things that everyone listening right now that can do to vastly improve, whether it's their their life or their business or just any kind of overall tips that are you know easy to implement but make big impact? Sure. Yeah, I can give a couple that, that come to mind. Uh, one would be focus on quality of sleep, and I'll give a couple of specific examples. Uh, there, because there are the mutants who can who can get by on three or four hours of sleep per night and, in fact, seem to thrive on that. The vast majority of people in the book who are the best of the best at what they do get good sleep and prioritize it. So there are a few things that can help. Uh, one, this is a tip from Rick Rubin, who's legendary music producer. Yeah. And the same tip uh, came from Laird Hamilton, who's the, king of, the undisputed king of big wave surfing, I would say. At least he was for decades. And also Kelly Starrett of CrossFit fame. Uh, the... The three of them all use a device called the Chili Pad, C-H-I-L-I-P-A-D, which is a thin sheet you can put under your normal sheets that mm -hmm. allows you to set a temperature because water circulates through it, uh, I think between 55 and 100 degrees. And it solves so many sleep problems. Most, most people sleep too hot, uh, but you can use this to address, say, if, if you live with a significant other and one runs hot, one runs cool, and you're fighting over the covers or how much covers or where the air conditioning should be. Yeah. This addresses <laughs> all of those issues. Uh, so that, that's, that's a very cool device. It is a little pricey. If you wanted something, uh, two things that are uh, free or close to free, you could try using Tetris before bed if you have insomnia. So this is the, from... The game? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. the, the Game Boy version's fine. Uh, Jane McGonigal, who's a PhD, an incredible scientist who's looked a lot at game design, uh, has looked at the connection, and there are some studies that cover this uh, with what you might call visual overwriting. So the, the, having the using a tool like Tetris to sort of impose visual input on your mind, uh, the ability to use that to prevent or mitigate, say, PTSD. You can also, uh, games like that, Candy Crush also comes up, can be used to as an intervention for, say, compulsive eating disorders. There's, there's some pretty, they're fascinating applications. But to keep it simple, 10 minutes, if you have onset insomnia, 10 minutes of Tetris, uh, make sure you set the brightness low on your phone, but 10 minutes of Tetris before bed is is pretty close to a magic trick for a lot of folks. Now, if that doesn't work or you want to double up, uh, there's a trick from uh, a, another PhD, Seth Roberts, uh, who is Professor Emeritus at Berkeley, sadly has passed away, but he had a sleep recommendation that was that has been amazing and continues to be amazing for me. If, if you have trouble getting to sleep, try two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. I use Bragg's. Oh, yeah, I have that. One tablespoon of raw honey, and mix it into hot water, and drink that before bed. I don't, I don't know mechanistically exactly why it works, but I do know that for I'd say, looking at now thousands of fans who have tried this, it seems like seven or eight people out of ten have this work really well for them. It knocks, are, it knocks you out. Oh yeah, just knocks you out. I, I really don't know exactly why, but it, it it does seem to work for seven or eight out of ten people. And most of these performers that you know they. They they recommend sleep. Are these seven hour people, eight hour sleep people, or is there a magic uh, number? I would say the vast majority. If I had to look at the vast majority of people in the book, are probably getting seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Okay. That's a good tip. What's your new your new superfood? My new superfood. Well, a I'm very skeptical of superfoods, but I would say that in but in, if we're looking for nutrient density, mushrooms in general are fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, they're it, they're the oddest creatures slash plants you can imagine uh so i've become very fascinated by mushrooms and specifically chaga which uh is a a go-to source of nutrients for laird hamilton who came up earlier for instance but how do they uh, taste uh they taste just fine actually it's very very earthy so by itself i've i've had ground chaga i've had all sorts of different types of chaga. You, you can get chaga in instant coffee, for instance. There's, there are a couple options out there. If you just search chaga coffee, there are some options <laughs> out there. Uh, but it has a very earthy, peaty flavor. Uh, I don't find it bad at all. It's, uh, it's very, in some ways, very reminiscent of uh, a tea called pu'er tea, which is an aged black tea from China. But chaga isn't caffeinated. So I've had that before bed, for instance, just to wind down. All right, little mu- mushrooms, Tetris, and uh, apple cider vinegar, and we're all we've cured we've cured insomnia. <laughs> I think it, uh, it, it. I used to have horrific onset insomnia; it would take me an hour to two hours to get to sleep. So I, I have largely fixed that, and it is using tools like those that I just mentioned. And real quick, we've we went through your uh, your nutrition tips. I want if you have a second, I want to talk branding real quick. Because yeah. you, you went from you know an unlikely best-selling book, and you've turned that book into, I'd say, a personal empire that spans you know publishing, websites, podcasts. What are what are your what do we do? How do how did you get there? In terms of branding, in terms of branding or growing, you were like uh, you know did it, most people write a great book and they kind of rest in the laurels. You've turned that into an empire. What what are the keys to that? Yeah, I would I would uh, definitely suggest reading up on 
uh, what Scott Adams calls, and he's done a lot of writing on this, systems thinking. He, he has some really good writing out there. You can find it in Tools of Titans or some of it, but you can also find it in his books and on his website. So he, he, if, if you look for Scott Adams, who's the creator of Dilbert, and systems thinking, uh, I think he has some great recommendations for uh, career building, but it also applies to company building. And uh, in effect... It echoes advice that uh, was given by Derek Sivers, an amazing entrepreneur and I think pretty deep thinker and philosopher of his, in his own right, on my podcast, which is the, the, the best option is the one that creates more options. So I very often look at, say, the five or six things I'm considering and ask, which of these, A, will allow me to develop skills and relationships that can persist even if this project fails? Mm-hmm. That's question number one. And then two which of these creates the most other options in, say, even a moderate success case? And by doing that, then if I'm treating my life as a series of six-month experiments, I'm always using those two criteria to select the next fork in the road, if that makes sense. It does, and it makes it seems like that the Tim Ferriss show, the podcast, you know, checked all those boxes in, in, in a big way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely did. And ages ago, angel investing checked that box. Uh, and I feel like it, it, as things in life and priorities change over time, I decided that angel investing no longer was the, the fork in the path that gave me the most options, the most excitement, and so on and so forth. So I went in a different direction. And uh, that is all a consequence of six-month projects. It is. I, I did not have any type of. No one thought the first book was going to be successful. Really, uh, myself included. I figured, well, you know, if a handful of people read it and it, it fundamentally changes how they look at their life and their options. Then I will consider it a success. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's how I thought about it. So there, there was no master plan behind it. Although it'd be really sexy and impressive sounding if I made that seem to be the case. It just isn't <laughs> the case. I had no master plan. Yeah, you're you're like the Forrest Gump of of media. <laughs> there we go. No, in a good no, you do a lot of exper- no, I'll take it. you, you I'll experiment take it. and you and you 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 pivot and change a lot, but then a lot of times what you do to just make solve your own interests have turned into these incredible uh, platforms. Yeah, yeah, it's no exactly true. It's it's amazing how far scratching your own itch can take you. <laughs> it's 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 really amazing how far. Just having that as one of your guiding tenets can take you. Well, Tim, this was great. I really appreciate all your time and insight. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Mick Garris. When it comes to horror, you might know me as a writer, producer, and director. But I also love making people... Open up. I'm getting together with the most fascinating people in fright filmmaking. I'm going to pick their brains and find out what they know. But if they've got any secrets they're determined to keep, I have ways of making them talk. Download new episodes of Postmortem with Mick Garris every other Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. 
Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.